Hi, my name's Tori and I wish I knew more about blood products. Hi, my name's Letitia. I wish I knew more about taking care of myself when starting shift work. Hi, my name is Lydia. I wish I would know more about how to work as in a team and solve conflict. Hello, welcome to Five Things, the nursing podcast from the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. My name is Liz Crow. I'm Jesse Spur, and this is a podcast by, for, and with the amazing nurses and health professionals in our corner of the world. We hope to connect with a global community as we move from surviving to thriving. Welcome to Five Things. Hello, my name is Liz Crow, And I'm Jesse Spur. And today we're going to talk about five things we need to understand about drug and alcohol addiction. And so we're welcoming Alison Backler, who is the clinical nurse consultant for the Alcohol and Drug Service here at the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. Hello, Alison. Hello. Hey, Alison. Hello. We'd love to get to know a little bit about your nursing background and how you've ended up in this role. Okay, well... Um I guess when I finished university, I went on to go down the mental health pathway. So I ended up um, actually, my first job was at Bailey Henderson Hospital in Toowoomba and one of the wards that I worked on was for people who had had a terrible alcohol dependence and were no longer able to live in the community. Um, From that sort of pathway, I then went on to work in all... I would say probably most areas in mental health. So I worked in private, um, I worked um, in public adults, I did adolescent mental health nursing for quite a while. Um, I worked in the psychiatric emergency centre that we have here at the Royal Brisbane. Um, At one point um, I did sort of find all of that mental health nursing quite stressful and demanding and I was getting a bit burnt out. Um, I was working at the time at the MARTA hospital in the uh, child and adolescent unit there. And I just went home one day and I said to my husband, I don't think I really want to do this anymore. I'm going to actually not go back. And um, I thought that I would go and find another career, (laughs) as so many nurses have probably tried to do before. Um, So I actually went off and I did um, a diploma in remedial massage and then... I uh, basically finished my diploma at that point and got started with work and then all of a sudden um, I had an unexpected death of my husband and so then I was very, very lost and I really just didn't know what I was going to do with my life. Um, Nursing certainly provides a much more steady and stable income than... Um, what I had, yeah, yeah, what I had chosen to do. And at that time, um, I thought actually after about 12 months of just not working and just sort of recovering, Breathing I, yeah, and, and just yeah. sort of really, um, getting the strength back to work with people again, yeah. I, uh, found myself picking up the phone and, uh, ringing up people that I had worked with previously and then, um, started work back within the mental health service here at this hospital, um, doing sort of uh, education with students and things like that. And then I sort of slowly started accepting casual shifts within different parts of the hospital. And then 
Literally one day I got a casual shift at the HADS unit here, which is the detox service that we have. And literally I arrived on the ward and within only a matter of hours, I really actually just felt like I was this home. This is my place. It was yeah. my place. And I really loved the staff and I liked the patients and I liked what they did. And I just found a little home and a little family and it was what I needed at the time. And I've never left. I've just sort of worked within that service um, for now about 12 years. I'm really sorry to hear about your husband. You're oh. a young woman. You yeah, know, you yeah, look yeah. young. So yeah. you must have been a widow very early. Yeah, I was 33, almost. I was, yeah, just before I turned 34. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. It, I think it probably says something to your personal resilience. But I, I want to pick up on the fact that you said, you know, that actually at times nursing can be an extended family, yes. isn't it? A, yeah. a, a real place of purpose and meaning but also connection and relationships. Absolutely. I've been very fortunate, I think, in my nursing career to just work with wonderful people. Yeah. I've just found wonderful person after wonderful person and, yeah, I've been very fortunate and lucky, I think, in yeah. that regard. Yeah. What an interesting and painful way to find actually an area of passion. Yeah, no regrets. Mm. Yeah. Terrific. Yeah. All right, so we might go straight into it. Yeah. So the first point you have is that alcohol and drug addiction can happen to anyone. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about like the the depth and breadth of people you see with addictions? Well, I guess even just working here in public, I suppose you see a massive amount of different incomes and different um, backgrounds and things like that. And what I've found is that Honestly, from lawyers to doctors to um, radio personalities and celebrities and um, mothers with families and um, people who, you know, are struggling and have struggled their whole lives, this um, addiction can really affect anybody. And I've seen people who have at one point in their life been you know, very wealthy and had everything essentially reduced to nothing. Um, a delirious person in a nappy in a public hospital room under constant observation strapped to a bed. It's pretty um, full on what addiction can actually take away from people. All of us could be one accident away from this devastation, couldn't we? Absolutely. And um, even when people are starting out experimenting with alcohol and drugs as young people some people just you know if they've had trauma in their lives or if they're particularly anxious or if they've got ADHD maybe that hasn't been diagnosed or all sorts of other reasons find that um, the drugs and alcohol can certainly provide them with something that they've never felt before yeah and um, can certainly encourage people down that path if they don't have the right structures and friendships and things like that around them. So so you've kind of opened up with the, the enlightenment that basically anyone can develop an addiction. Mm. We have a lot of stereotypes about what, it, what an addicted person looks like, what they are. Can you tell us what is addiction? Yeah, sure. So um, addiction really as a definition would be um, classified as a 
a chronic and relapsing disorder and that is characterised by intense cravings for um, and compulsive use of a substance um, despite the adverse consequences that may appear in somebody's life as a result of using them. Um, addiction itself is actually considered a brain disorder because it does actually change our brains. So first what happens is that it disrupts the way that our brains register pleasure and then it corrupts other normal um, drives within our brain such as learning and motivation and that then perpetuates that cycle of craving and as time goes on it just weakens the ability of that person to control their behaviour and their compulsion. Is there such thing, you know, like you occasionally read there's such thing as an addictive personality or that um, addictions are hereditary. Mm -hmm. Like what, what is the science around that now? Um, the latest information that I've read is that perhaps in about 50% there is some kind of genetic component behind somebody's compulsive behaviour or tendency to develop an addiction. So if addictions are close to compulsions, is there is there a high correlation between addictions and OCD and stuff like that or that's hard to say? There is a high correlation between addiction um, and substance abuse yeah. with ADHD, um, yeah, yeah, particularly in undiagnosed or um, late diagnosis or untreated ADHD. Yeah, it's it's. It, I guess it, this will be like everything, won't it? It'll mm. the science in this area will continue to grow. Yeah, absolutely. And those people who have undiagnosed ADHD will often run into them here in hospital quite often on the orthopaedic ward yeah. where their lack of attention and impulsive and compulsive behaviours have landed in a, a trauma where then there's fractures or typically an e-scooter accident or something like, like that. that. Yeah. Um, and then when you actually sit with that person and talk to them and look at their history, you see that they've had this history of, you know, one blunder after another where they've hurt themselves and things like that and you can sort of look back a little bit further and see that there may be a component there ADHD we do know that those people tend to um, use substances maybe more frequently than others um, or be drawn to that um, type of lifestyle or um, certainly if they've tried an amphetamine or some kind of stimulant that that has actually helped them focus and manage their life and have then gone down the path of um, using stimulants. Mm. But on the whole, mm. there's no race, gender, age, uh, demographic that makes you more inclined to be addicted to drug and alcohol. Uh, not that I know of. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Not, not as cause but potentially correlation. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. All right. Is it all right to go to your number two point? Please. All right. So your number two is what is the role of thiamine? Okay. So thiamine is something that we bang on about a lot here in <laughs> uh, from a drug and alcohol perspective. So thiamine is actually an essential vitamin or nutrient. It's actually vitamin B1 and it is a – uh, vitamin that can become very, very depleted in somebody who is a chronic alcoholic. So people who 
consume um, lots of alcohol every day will tend to have a diet that is uh, quite low in vitamins um, and essential nutrients. They have a gastrointestinal system that's very, very inflamed and they don't absorb nutrition very well. Um, they're not eating very much. Um, so, you know, usually people that I see that might be drinking four litres of wine a day, they don't tend to get an appetite. They are full already and they may not eat for many weeks at a time. They become quite malnourished. Um, the alcohol actually acts as a diuretic and does flush out lots of good nutrition and even um, uh, diets that have lots of sulfites in them and wine also has sulfites that can interfere with um, retention of thiamine within your body. So what do we need thiamine for? We actually need it. It's quite essential for us to convert sugars into energy basically. So if we don't have good levels of thiamine in our bodies and all of a sudden we need to digest food, then our body will take the supply from the last remaining resource, which can be the brain. And then we can have a situation where we've got a patient who um, becomes encephalopathic. They develop... <laughs> they develop <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. They develop an encephalopathy called yeah. Wernicke's encephalopathy. Mm -hmm. um, and that is a condition that's um, characterised by confusion, loss of balance, nystagmus, um, disorientation and that sort of thing. Tremors. Tremors is another one? Uh, uh, well, alcohol withdrawal will certainly produce tremors and generally we see Wernicke's in patients with alcohol withdrawal because all of a sudden they're being asked to eat food and not drink. And then we have that shift and um, all of a sudden we have someone develop that acute confusion and they may have a, a terrible tremor already because of their alcohol withdrawal. Yeah. So, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting thing. Like I went to university and yes. would say that in my younger days, binge drink, um, binge drank, binge drinked. <laughs> sounds like I'm still impaired. Um, but I guess how much is too much alcohol and is there an actual definition for what is an alcohol dependence? Well, an alcohol dependence um, for people that I'm working with are people that will suffer uh, withdrawal symptoms if that substance is removed. Um, so... It can be a number, there can be a number of factors in play. So sometimes it may be to do with the health of somebody's liver and how much they're drinking and how spread out their alcohol use is. Um, but you would classify dependence as um, somebody that needs that substance to function normally. So when I see people who um, maybe would talk to me about wanting to stop alcohol and what they um, have tried before and that sort of thing and they are walking and talking normally and you wouldn't think that they're affected by alcohol but then they blow into the breathalyzer and they're 0.23 or wow. close to 0.3 yeah. walking talking completely normal that's when we know that the body has adapted to having that substance on board and they're going to have withdrawal symptoms if we take it away yeah, yeah. 
I guess before we kind of put a lid on the thiamine, um, I, I feel like there's a couple more points. Absolutely. <laughs> loaded in there. <laughs> but that was the, the um, understanding the withdrawal process is going to be our next point. Yes. Um, with number three. But so thiamine, we've, we've established it's essential. Yep, absolutely. Um, it's depleted significantly um, in people who have uh, alcohol um, addiction and heavy use. Mm-hmm. Um what do we do about that? So we get a patient coming in to say, uh, or let's let's go with the orthopedic case. Yep. They've they've had an orthopedic injury um, and they are needing surgery. Yep. And we've flagged in our history that they have a history of substantial alcohol use. Um, where what do we do as the nurse yep. in that situation? So, um, how we prevent um, the development of an encephalopathy? from thiamine depletion is by just basically giving thiamine. So for patients who have been drinking a lot, they don't tend to absorb oral thiamine very well. So therefore we try to give nice big amounts either intramuscularly or intravenously. So generally we would hope that our patients are on some intravenous thiamine, um, particularly malnourished patients, we would suggest that they have about 300 milligrams TDS IV for the first three days or so until their systems are sort of settled down and they may be able to start tolerating and um, absorbing the oral thiamine properly. Um, If Wernicke's encephalopathy goes untreated, it can then become a permanent condition. So that's a really important thing for people to be aware of because if you – well, I guess – if you think back to Liz's um, days of binge drinking, as we've all potentially had, including myself, where we can't actually, maybe we've had a blackout, we can't remember what's happened. What that actually is, a blackout is us just not being able to lay down new memories. Mm. And for people with a Wernicke's encephalopathy that never goes away and is untreated, it goes on to develop into what's called Korsakoff psychosis. And people with Korsakoff psychosis are not able to make or form new memories. Wow. If you can't make new memories, you can't function in the community. Yeah. yeah, And it doesn't matter how old you are. Um, I've seen people in their 30s go to nursing homes with this kind of condition. So that's why thiamine is super important. We want that um, to be given to people. Um, usually it will in this hospital, it will be flagged in the emergency department because we have a service that screens for these types of patients. Um, so most of the time I will find that people have um, got thiamine prescribed by the time I go to see them on the wards, but not always. So, you know, uh, fortunately uh, nurses uh, on the wards tend to be thinking about these things and I'll often get referrals to come and um, request these types of that type of medication f- uh, from the treating teams. Yeah, I, I've always sort of thought of it as if you're thinking about starting an alcohol withdrawal scale on absolutely. someone, check that they've got thiamine prescribed. Yes. It's a good kind of yes, cognitive Jesse, yes. direction. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I guess what I'm curious about is there must be people who have alcohol dependence in our community who don't recognise they have a dependence. Mm. You know, like, oh, you know, I just I love a white wine at the end of the day. Uh, don't see that having a bottle of half on their own repeatedly day in, day out could be really harmful. So what happens if someone like that slips and falls, 
presents as like high functioning, comes in and then actually starts having withdrawals. They might be embarrassed. It might, it could present as, you know, delirium, you know, like is there some way, is this really about the importance of assessment and asking, can I ask how much alcohol do you have every day and hoping that the person is honest? Well, I guess we can really tell when we're looking at someone's blood results in the emergency department whether or not someone has an alcohol issue because we've got certain markers um, within the liver function test that tell us whether somebody is um, drinking a lot. Yep. We can have a look and it's fairly indicative that there's a lot of alcohol being consumed. It's only a minority of people with an alcohol issue will actually seek assistance or treatment. Yeah. And I see people quite frequently on the wards who maybe are drinking a bottle of spirits a day or a couple of bottles of wine a day and I get asked to see them but they don't think that there's any issue no with problem. that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so not everyone will develop that insight and it's a little bit about what I said before, you know, you the brain actually changes. So um Sometimes it can take a long time for people to develop insight and sometimes people need to have a lot of losses uh, before they decide that there's a perhaps problem. they might have an issue. Yeah. And then there's a, another step, do they want to do anything about that? Yeah. That sort of brings us on to our point three of being why we really worried about withdrawal and withdrawal being very, very dangerous. Mm -hmm. Well, if withdrawal is not treated properly and if things are not done uh, properly at the beginning, we can have somebody in hospital for a very, very long time with complications from alcohol withdrawal. And I mean, not only alcohol, uh, there are other substances that are quite dangerous to cease um, suddenly as well. So cessation of alcohol very suddenly, cessation of benzos very suddenly um, and also uh, at the moment we're seeing a lot of GHB. Um, so cessation of a big GHB habit is also potentially dangerous and then of course there are other sort of um, funny medications like Lyrica and things like that. If they are stopped suddenly, if people are using large amounts of them, they can also be dangerous. So we need to sort of have a look at these people at the beginning. Um, if somebody does become delirious because of their withdrawal state or have a, a seizure, then it may be very likely that they have a prolonged admission to hospital. Whereas if things are done properly at the beginning and we can get on top of things early, we may be able to prevent complications in withdrawal like seizures and delirium. And I guess in addition to the withdrawal of from the drug, there's also that, that subset and particularly I suppose with alcohol as you pointed out that you've got a often coexisting malnutrition that might not always um, represent as someone who's anorexic in appearance or body mass yep. um, because they're still getting calories. Yes. But so we've got it where we're also being very careful about re things like refeeding at that point in time and yeah, absolutely. Um, establishing diet and checking bloods regularly in that. That's right. We do want those bloods checked regularly because usually we'll find that um, someone who's been drinking a lot and not eating will certainly have a high risk of refeeding syndrome. Now, one thing that I didn't say before about thiamine is that 
Um, thiamine requires magnesium to transport it in the body to where it needs to go. So quite often these guys will present with low levels of magnesium. You can give all the thiamine you like, but if you don't have a good level of magnesium to get it to where it needs to be, you're sort of chasing your tail. So um, it's usually a good thing to be replacing that magnesium quite aggressively um, because it will, you know, they might give a, a couple of mini bags and then all of a sudden the next day we've got a magnesium that's, you know, gone from 0.7 to below 0.5 just so quickly because of the refeeding. Yeah, mm. and because it's being used in co-transport. So your serum magnesium at the start is kind of falsely reassuring. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Mm. How often is it that um, someone has an accident or a misfortune or becomes ill and comes into hospital and then all of a sudden everyone is surprised to see withdrawal symptoms? Is that a, is that a common thing? Because I'd imagine if you're a high-functioning addict, whatever whatever it is that you're addicted to, if you're just in a random car accident or you have a heart attack, you could have withdrawal symptoms and no one really has ever recognised before that there's been an addiction problem. Is that common? Well, I I don't know. That would be a bit hard to say because we don't know that person and their family beforehand. I, I, I guess, I don't know, a bit of a hard question. I guess my experience yeah. of working in what I would uh, frame a toxicology um, specialty ICU because yeah. we're a non-tertiary non ICU is seeing a lot of people with other illnesses and a reported history of high alcohol intake mm -hmm. um, but then the, the time that they're in the unit, the pieces coming together and the family realising and often if the patient's not delirious at that point them realizing that actually, wow, I'm withdraw. I'm having I'm like, I'm serious symptomatic withdrawal because yeah. it's the first time that they've stopped. There's been a critical illness that stopped them, and it's yes. and it's a long enough window of time that they develop um, withdrawal symptoms that are affecting them. I guess it's the severity of illness because if someone comes into hospital has a semi-elective procedure, um, even a even a fracture repair, like an an ankle fracture repair. Um, the, and then is discharged in a few days and resumes their normal lifestyle when they get home, mm. they, you won't, won't often see the more severe withdrawal mm. symptoms in that time. Yeah. And it's not uncommon for me to sort of see somebody um, who doesn't have any insight and they'll be tremulous and you say, oh, is that normal for you to be tremulous? Oh, yes, I usually have a tremor. Does that go away when you start drinking? Oh, yes, that normally goes away. Yeah, so they're seeing kind of alcohol as they a don't realise that that's it helps what it's the trauma. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Wow. Are you happy to go to our number four point? Yeah, sure. So, I guess this is a really important one for everyone who's listening out there that patients with addictions can still have pain relief. Absolutely. So, um, I suppose we're looking with with this sort of question. We'd be probably focusing a little bit more on our patients that have an opioid dependence. So um, usually what you'll find is, well, I'll get a referral that says, you know, IVDU history, there's been an accident um, or somebody's in hospital for some kind of surgery um, and all of a sudden we find out that they're addicted to heroin or something like that. And staff do find, uh, what, what I find actually is that I go to see somebody and I have a look at their medications. Firstly, 
they're quite often not even prescribed the kind of medication that I would expect for myself if I'd had mm. that kind of surgery. They uh, attend, doctors may tend to prescribe less mm-hmm. um, and they don't have the PRNs available or if the PRNs are available, only the minimum doses are being given. Um, so these guys um, really do struggle when they're in hospital because they're uh, – I guess they haven't necessarily planned to come in mm. um, and so they may not necessarily have a supply of what they need to sort of get them through day to day and some of the medications that are prescribed may only just kind of substitute for their opioid habit, yep. if that makes sense. So pain relief that is given may only just be filling somebody up to have them normal and not actually addressing the pain. Pain. Uh, so I would say that, you know, quite often I'll see somebody, they'll have a deficit of opioids yeah. and really instead of being worried that giving somebody pain relief is just going to fuel and drive their addiction, well, probably not giving someone pain relief is just going to fuel their desire to um, bring illicit drugs onto the ward, um, meet somebody downstairs or sign themselves at a hospital. So quite often we would want to try to retain somebody in hospital manage their opioid dependence with whatever means we think is appropriate for that person and what we have sort of come to an agreement with with that patient. Um, And sometimes, um, you know, that person may even agree to going on to an opioid treatment program and we can have them discharged into treatment rather than sort of being managed ad hoc on the ward. And it sounds like it's it's well-intentioned. You know, someone goes, okay, this person's got a drug drug addiction. They've uh, been in an e-scooter accident and have smashed their leg up. So we're not going to give them drugs because that's going to help them get off drugs. I mean, it's a good intention. But when you've just said how dangerous withdrawal can be, you know, when someone's injured, it's not the time to start depriving them of an addiction, is it? Oh, absolutely not. No, we want to get that person to their normal state and then figure out what they need on top of that to sort of manage their pain. This is for opioids, of course. They're the amphetamine people are a little bit different. So when they come in after a catastrophic trauma, uh, usually um, what we'd find is that that person has been using lots and lots of amphetamines. Um, they'll be have been awake for a long time um, and then everything is sort of accumulated and come together in a big trauma or accident and all of a sudden, you know, they've headed off for surgery or whatever and then they're in the ortho ward and the staff are wondering, why won't this person wake up? Like, mm. you know, they're sedated so therefore we're not going to give them any pain relief or anything like that. But what we need to be doing for these guys is totally opposite. Um, they're actually asleep because they haven't actually slept for days Days. maybe longer than that Mm. Um, and what I usually recommend is that that person be left to rest but then woken up at key times to do all of their cares at once offer food offer pain relief and that sort of thing at those times and then let them rest don't worry that they're they appear to be sedated they're actually just asleep you will notice that um, if they are sedated from pain relief that you'll 
have you'll be able to see that on the sedation score with their resps and things like that. Um, but yeah, an amphetamine person is a, a totally different kettle of fish. Your last and final point, number five, is that there's a real difference between recreational drug use and dependence. Like, what it, what is the line? Well, I don't know. I guess that, <laughs> that maybe that line's different for different people. But, um, I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say in this point is that uh, people who use drugs recreationally are not uh, usually going to become dependent. Um, most people who do use drugs um, in a recreational sense, so those types of party drugs and things like that, normally people have a positive experience. They find that it helps them connect with others and their friends and they have a fun time and they will not usually do it again for, you know, sometimes a week, sometimes a couple of weeks, sometimes months or sometimes years. Mm. You know, not everybody who... Um, uses recreational drugs is going to become an addict. Not everyone that uses recreational drugs is going to come to harm. And we see this here in the emergency department, particularly when we have a festival across the road where we have, you know, many thousands of people there of a vast, you know, big chunk of them will be taking recreational drugs at the venue. We might get a few that come to the emergency department. So, yeah. We'll edit out this Final fight, fifth point for the parents of teenagers that yeah. are, t- that are <laughs> telling their kids, don't ever use drugs, you'll get addicted. Yeah. I, I read somewhere that a, um, an addiction is something that, yeah, if you don't have it, you withdraw. But also um, when the use of that substance, whatever it is, interferes with your life goals. But from what you're saying, you could be consuming, you know, like a bottle of spirits a day but still able to potentially go to work and function? Well, people do because they've got a dependence. Um, People can function with an alcohol dependence of drinking that amount because their body has adapted. Mm. That doesn't mean that it's – that they're not addicted. They are. Yeah. Yeah. I find all of this so interesting because we are in a culture – where drinking for most people is very commonplace. You go to someone's house, you bring alcohol. Uh, certainly in the music festival scenes, you know, can't say I've ever had done it myself, but, you know, you, you hear that a lot of young people are participating. And I guess, you know, our main message is, is that if people have got a concern, they should really talk about it with a, a health practitioner. Yeah, absolutely. And um, Queensland has recently decided that it will allow pill testing at festivals and that um, there will be a a site set up um, somewhere as a permanent thing for people and young people to be able to bring their substances in to be tested and that's a really good opportunity at that time for them to have a discussion with a health professional about um, what the substance actually is and what's in it and how to um, stay as safe as possible if they make the choice to go ahead and use that substance. Yeah. Okay, such an interesting topic today. I'm going to have a go at summarising your five points and by all means please join in if I get anything wrong. But when we're talking about drug and alcohol addiction, your number one point is actually this could happen to anyone. 
This is not ha- doesn't happen to a specific target group or a particular demographic or culture. This can happen to anyone and we need to be really aware of that. Number two is that there's a real role for thiamine and that often that comes around because particularly people with an alcohol dependence aren't eating properly. They're deprived of this vitamin and that can have long-term and very serious consequences on the brain. So if I'm a nurse at the bedside or a, or a doctor or I'm concerned about a relative, I need to be aware of also their nutrition and the importance of starting thiamine in conjunction with magnesium as soon as possible. Number three, withdrawal is really dangerous. It needs to be done in a really prescribed and intentional way. So we, we shouldn't be encouraging people to just go cold turkey uh, and that when people are in hospital, it it means that we need to engage healthcare professionals who have expertise such as yourself to help us to help manage our patients who might be suffering from withdrawal. Yep. Number four is that patients with addictions still really require pain relief. That if someone has got a serious illness or a serious injury, it's not the time to make a decision to start withdrawing, you know, medication from them or withholding pain meds. We've got to get them back to their normal baseline and then have a really serious and important discussion with them about, you know, how we could manage their drug or alcohol problem. Yes, please get us involved for all those patients. Yeah, and the sooner the better. And number five is that there's a real difference between people who recreationally use drugs or alcohol and people who have a dependence. And, you know, if you're listening to this yourself and you're not sure, you know, like, is this something that is pervasive? You know, like every single day you need to use a substance. Otherwise, you don't feel well, you feel jittery, you feel uh, that you can't cope. That can be a sign. Um, Is it something that is persistent? You know, like, it's it's not just on holidays where you're having a drink every single day. It's every single day you need to drink or every single day you need to take a substance. And that withdrawal from that substance actually has a consequence where people feel unwell, have symptoms and feel that they can't cope. Then they really need to go and have a discussion with a healthcare professional as soon as possible. I think that's pretty good. (laughs) Right. Quite impressed. (laughs) (laughs) What a terrific topic and an important one and something that we need to be considering at all times. Um, Thanks very much for joining us on Five Things. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for asking me. The Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital Five Things Nursing Podcast acknowledges the Turrbal and Yagara as the First Nations owners of the lands we now tread. We pay respect to their elders, laws, customs and creation spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of healing, teaching and learning. We also wish to acknowledge the First Nations people of the lands of our global community and encourage our listeners to seek out, listen and learn from the knowledge held in your shared space. As well as all major podcast outlets, you can find us at fivethingsnursing.podbean.com. Please also subscribe and give us a rating on your listening platform of choice. This helps others find the podcast. And finally, if you'd like to connect with Liz or myself on Twitter, we can be found at LizCrow2. And for me, it's inject underscore orange. We would absolutely love to hear your thoughts, ideas, or feedback. 
Thanks for listening to Five Things.